0: You're listening to audio from the Village Church, a community that's formed by the Gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about the Village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com.
1: Good morning. 2 Peter 3 1 through 13. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved, and both of them. I am stirring up you, your sincere mind, by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and of the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise? All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked the fact that the that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but is patient towards you not wishing that any should perish but all should reach repentance but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in, in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening and the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The word of the Lord.
0: You all can be seated and the children can be dismissed to their classes. Thanks, Corey. Good morning. My name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here of the village. Good to see you all today. Um, We are just kind of going to jump right in, but before we do, um, man, even this morning in the little bit of time that some of us have been here, there have been uh, tears shed and uh, and psalms read in the back and laughter and all sorts of stuff. And so, um, man, none of us this morning, including myself, are equipped to just meet you all where you are, but the Lord is. And so I just want to invite you guys to join me in prayer um, as we move forward this morning. So pray with me. God, we thank you for letters like this from good and faithful shepherds who love their people, who love their flock, who know the hurts and the joys of their people and their churches, who want to serve them well, and who reminded the people that they couldn't even sit down with, that they were far away from, of the great truths of the gospel, the promise that we have to look forward to. So this morning, God, we find ourselves in lots of different places. Uh, each and every single one of us, and says we sang, God, you are good, and you are the one who can lead us home, and so a temporary home together as the church gathered as brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray that you would give us a vision, uh, a hope, and assurance that comes from you putting out before us your promise to bring us home to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Um, God, thank you for Jesus and his grace on us this morning. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who is with us and in us, um, and thanks for being a good dad and a good king, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. All right, so uh, like I said, we're going to just kind of hop right into our focal passage this morning, no cool little like anecdote or funny story or whatever, so we're going to look at the first three passages, this will kind of tee us up for what's going on and what we're going to look at for the rest of our time together this morning. So we're going uh, to look at 2 Peter 3, just the first three verses, 1 through 3, and this is what Peter writes. He says, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved, and both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. All right, so... Like Peter says, this is his second letter. Uh, I know, like, duh, we've been in Second Peter for a few weeks now, uh, but he said it. And so we kind of know that, hey, this is actually the second letter that Peter wrote. We should uh, acknowledge that. This letter was probably written a few years after, uh, after his first letter, probably about five years max or so in between the two letters. Um, and like Peter says, he does spend lots of time in both letters, uh, his first and his second, just kind of reminding his readers about the predictions that the prophets made, what Jesus commanded, um, the promises of God, all kind of pointing to uh, the hope-filled future that that they get to wait for and how they ought to live while they wait for that future to arrive. But there's a, a key shift between his first letter and this one that we're reading right now in terms of why his readers need to be reminded of those things. All right, so in his, in his first letter, Peter's writing to a church that's suffering. In this letter, he's writing to a church that's vulnerable to false teaching. And, and that progression from, from suffering to false teaching, that progression is, is not surprising. All right, um, maybe some of you have uh, maybe cheated on a diet at some point, right, because you had a bad day. Like, maybe you're on a diet, you're really disciplined, you're not someone who would normally do that, uh, maybe you already used your cheat day, your diet accommodates for that in some way for the week, but you just had a really bad day, and so you're, you're taking another one, right? You, you deserve that extra slice of pizza, that extra bowl of ice cream, whatever it is, uh, that extra peanut, I don't know what your diet is. Like, you, like you, you wanna take that cheat day because dang it, you had a bad day, and this is what you deserve. Uh, or maybe you've heard of someone who has uh, maybe cheated, not on their diet, but, but maybe on their spouse, something that they never thought that they would ever do. Maybe you thought that they would never do either, but, but because their marriage is difficult and they're just not getting what they need from the other person. Or, or maybe you've heard of like seemingly otherwise honest folks uh, who, who kind of skirt stuff. They cheat on their taxes or their expense reports or they order a, uh, a water at at the counter, but then they fill it up with soda, right? Or whatever, like all because they think that, man, they work hard, blood, sweat, and tears at their job, at, the, at their home, wherever they happen to be. And they, you know what, they just deserve a little bit of something extra, a little bit more. I could give more examples, but if you've, if you've seen this kind of stuff before, these weird shifts or, or changes in some way in your own life, or maybe in somebody else's life, then you know how quickly anything from a, a minor inconvenience to a Uh, Just hard work to legitimate hardship can be fertile ground for us to change what we believe or how we live just in any given moment. There is a a pipeline from suffering to false teaching that we need to know about because false teachers know about it all too well, right? They, They love it when people suffer. False teachers love it when people suffer because that's when we are most open to putting our hope in somebody else's hands. That their business is good when people are hurting and fearful and confused, people who were tired and who were tired of waiting, who are desperate for just clear answers and quick fixes. Dude, that's that's their bread and butter. And so it's no surprise to us then that that the occasion of Peter's letters changes from the first to the second, from people who are being persecuted from outside to people who are being preyed upon by false teachers from the inside. And the shift is no surprise to the Lord either. God knows how our human hearts work because he he made them, after all, right? And so he knows that when injustice and sin and suffering, when those things flood the world around us, that our hearts, they get hungry for hope. And so like Peter wrote, uh, through the prophets, the apostles, Jesus, all the way through to this pulpit over uh, these last several years, God has told his people to be wary of who you let feed your soul, especially when it's hurting. Because it's so easy to think that you're being fed when really someone is just feeding on you, exploiting your need for something better, just so they can get more followers, more Likes, more pats on the back, or more book deals, donations, people in the seats, whatever it happens to be. Maybe even just to simply make them feel better about the sin that they are in. Scoffers will come, and they'll be there when it's your blood that's in the water. And, And right now, and I think we all know that, that there's lots of blood in the water today, culturally speaking. There is no lack of fear and confusion and division and all sorts of things in our world and in the church, which means that we need to be on guard against grifters who talk as if they actually know God. And so, look, there's, this is one of the things that, that make, uh, makes this kind of weird, Peter's talk of false teaching for, for me to be talking about as a pastor. Um, I mean, this whole thing hits me. Like, I have a mic and I'm on a stage, and I have a pulpit, and I'm on the internet somewhere right now or whatever, and and I'm telling you with your Bibles open that there are people that you should not be listening to, heavily implying that I am someone that you should listen to. Right? That's a little weird. Like, how do you know that I'm not the one exploiting you? How do you know that I'm not the one who's like advancing some hidden agenda or something? Or one of the ones that Peter is trying to warn us about today. How do I know that? As one of my kids uh, said earlier this week, we were talking about some of this stuff, and they're like, man, daddy, I hope you don't become like one of those bad pastors. I was like, well, honey, I hope I don't either. Thanks. <laughs> so look, I'm, I'm, I'm not unaware of that dynamic this morning, and I know Michael wasn't last week when we talked about this as well, but the thing that makes this even more personal uh, for me, and it, it's you because I'm not just a pastor, right? I'm your pastor, if you're a member of the Village Church. There's an Instagram account uh, called Nature is Metal. Anybody heard of that before, seen it before? It's it's essentially like the most gruesome parts of the circle of life that people follow for entertainment, sick people like me, uh, who follow that stuff just to be intrigued and aghast at like, man, this is what's actually going on in the world. Um, And it's it's just kind of crazy. You see some posts, you think you might have like a really tough stomach, but, but do you see some of these things? You think you've seen things, you've not seen things until you followed this Instagram account, Nature Is Metal. And I promise you that as a pastor today, watching sheep be devoured, especially when they are God's sheep entrusted into our care, herding sheep, suffering sheep looking to be fed. Dude, that stuff makes my stomach just churn. It's, it's equal parts infuriating and heartbreaking all at the same time. To think that some of the folks who, who have come and gone and who will go out from the village church at some point down the road, that they believe that, that they could be better cared for by a wolf in shepherd's clothing. It's really tough. Or to think that even some of you who are like physically here this morning, that, that you might be heeding the voices of authors and podcasters and, and bloggers and just random people on the internet who don't even know that you exist, that some algorithm just kind of brought you to in some way, shape, or form, that, that you're listening to them more than your own flesh and blood brothers and sisters and elders that God has given you. That's hard. Not because I, I, I need to be needed by you or anything, but, but because I know that what we all need is the gospel girded by sound doctrine and faithful shepherds and, and personally, tangibly embodied by a community of people around you. And that's not what any algorithm, that's not what any grifter or opportunist has any desire to offer you or give you. And so in a world that seems stuck, just stuck in a cycle of sin and suffering where it's it's easier than ever for some person on a free platform on the internet to tell you that they know what you need a big part of my job and Adam's job and Matt's job and Michael's job is to help you know just what it is that we're all waiting with hope just like Peter is trying to do here with the first century church and so that's It's kind of what we'll explore together today, our main idea for this morning as we go through the rest of this passage of scripture is that God's people wait according to his promise. That's just our main idea for this morning. And we'll hop into our first point here by looking at 2 Peter 3, 4 through 7, the next four verses, all right? So Peter goes on to say, uh, they, these scoffers that are going to come, they'll say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction. Of the ungodly, and so our first point this morning is this: that God will not overlook ungodliness. It's our first point for today. Uh, last week, man, if you were here for uh, for Michael's sermon, uh, Second Peter chapter two, he preached the whole chapter. Um, Peter just paints this picture of false teachers that make them seem like these like mustache twirling, hand wringing like evil, cackling Saturday morning cartoon villain kind of guys. Uh, right that you like you just couldn't miss from a mile away they sound that terrible but but if they look as bad on the outside as they seemingly are on the inside and what they do and all those things then how in the world could could these guys be such a threat to the church like what would make them so persuasive to anybody with two eyes and two ears and half a brain right like there's no way that we could possibly be duped by someone like this Thankfully this week, we actually finally get a look at what these false teachers uh, are not only teaching, but kind of how they're actually teaching it. That makes it so persuasive to folks. And it's not nearly as kind of on the nose as you might think it would be. It might sound like this, Peter writes. Where's the promise of Jesus coming? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, ever since that they've died? Like all things are just going on as they have been from just the beginning of creation. In other words, like nothing has changed, nothing is getting better. Like the first coming of Jesus, sure didn't alleviate any suffering. In fact, it kind of seemed to inflame it uh, in some way. And this so-called second coming of Jesus, that that hasn't happened yet. So so I'm just saying, and that's it. And I just want to be like, but what are you saying? What are you saying? And this is what kind of makes this stuff so slick, these false teachers, the, the scoffers, that they can say things without outright saying them, you know? Like, they just walk folks kind of up to the front door of, of unorthodoxy or heresy and just kind of let folks walk in on their own a little bit. Now, look, maybe that line of thinking, those questions are persuasive to you in some way. Maybe you think they're ridiculous. I have no idea. Uh, but what I do know is that, that this stuff, it's just a formula. It's just a form. It's it's not novel, it's not clever. It's three simple steps to just kind of nudge people towards false teaching, on purpose or not. And and you should know kind of what they are. So we're going to talk about those things. Three three simple steps to false teaching. Don't do these things. All right. Okay. Don't do them. I'm not telling you to go home and this is not an application. All right. Uh, this is for you to know. Uh, okay. So in one hand, just hold up a, a personal experience or some common hope or a a common frustration or some present reality that just a lot of folks agree with. Like, man, things are bad. Things don't seem to be getting any better either, right? Just acknowledge that. Yeah, everybody agrees with that. On the other hand, just quote a Bible verse. Say something Christian-y, right? Use words like creation and the fathers and pretend like you know something about, like, Bible history and all that stuff. Uh, And then, just three, all you do is you just kind of hold both of those things up next to each other and you see kind of where they land, whether whether they fit together or whether they don't. And then you just, you kind of make some observation about how they go together or how they don't in some way. And you might make a, uh, an external explicit declaration of some kind, but, but if you're really, really slick, what you do is you ask uh, an open-ended question because you don't want to seem too preachy. You don't want to seem too unorthodox. So you just ask an open-ended question that simply makes... Your conclusion, just possible. So, man, if, if things haven't been getting better, and, man, even though Jesus said he was going to return and fix all this stuff, where's the promise of his coming? And you just kind of leave it at that. Are we still waiting? Is that a thing that we're still waiting for? Is that happening? Has it already happened? It sounds innocent, right? But, but we've heard, we've also heard this before. In the very first book of the Bible, many of us are familiar with the question, did God really say? It's just another version of that, and, and you can do all of that, do those three little simple steps. You can do that in a 60-second TikTok video, or you can write an essay on Facebook and do that, or you can, you can write a whole, and that is really, at the end of the day, just an oversimplified, shallow treatment of the deep and complex things of God that that humans have been wrestling with for thousands and thousands of years. And the impact of that three little step bit can be the slow and steady unraveling of someone's confidence in the Lord. Now look, if you you know me for any length of time, then I hope you know that what I'm not saying here, what I'm not saying is that Christians should live with their heads in the ground, right, buried in the sand, Just unaware of what's going on in the world or in the church and refusing to ask or answer really hard questions, right? There is a way to ask, did God really say that is honestly just looking to know and understand the word of God and how it should work itself out in the church? And of all the groups on the planet, the church ought to be the one most willing to acknowledge and address the inconsistencies between what we say we believe and then how we actually really live our life. We should be willing to to look at those things together. That's, man, that's why we taught a class on faith and politics leading up to the election last year. That's why we talked about gender and sexuality stuff earlier this year. Not because that's fun, not just because it's trendy or whatever, but because the church ought to reckon with these things and reckon with them with the sincerity of mind that they deserve. Not in three little steps, but in hours spent together talking, teaching after years of listening and reading and studying, and even then, that's not all that needs to be said about all those things. And those are just two things. Ask hard questions. Like, address inconsistencies. Wrestle with complicated, complex things. Desire to know what God really said. Like, I, I want you this morning to be asking the question, where is the promise of God's coming? That's a question you should ask. I, I want that, but I don't want you to ask it in the way that Peter's referring here, because there's another way to ask did God really say? Where's the promise of his coming? That's, it's just meant to undermine what we know God has already said. And, and this is at the core of the false teaching that, that Peter is trying to confront. These false teachers, they're not trying to deconstruct idols in the church. They're not trying to build anyone up in Christ. They're not doing the Lord's work. All right? they, They're calling into question the very faithfulness of God by saying the only reason that any of us are stuck in this seemingly unbroken cycle of sin and suffering is because God himself has broken his promise to end it. If God hasn't failed entirely, then then at least, at the very least, he's late. False teachers will want you to believe that they care more about you and the injustice and the suffering that you face than God himself. Or the faithful shepherds that he's placed in your life. And, and to convince you of that, they overlook stuff that every kid back in Kayville would be able to tell you about. Right? These folks are saying that God's never done anything to put a stop to ungodliness since he made the planet. So uh, if you could, don't do this. Bust open a door back there in Kayville and ask one of the kids who Noah is. Th- they will tell you. Hey, remember that guy like that God spoke to when, when God was like really ticked that that the intention of every heart in the world was evil, and so he wanted to cleanse the entire world to get rid of injustice and sin and all those things. Yeah, like, I remember that. Kids don't forget that stuff. Kids remember those things. But here we have grown adults who have sat in, in church or synagogue, you know, their whole life claiming that God's done nothing in history to prove his commitment to judging the ungodly. That's literally what the flood was. Right, it was washing the world of evil and injustice. And so leaving that part out, that's not an oopsie. That's not an accident. False teachers don't don't accidentally overlook facts like that. They deliberately leave them out. Why would they do that? Because at least here, who we're talking to, they're not trying to to dupe agnostics or atheists or new agers. They're not trying to to dupe non-believers. They're trying to dupe you and they know that if you are sitting here week after week under the word then you probably care about what the bible says and so they'll take an exacto knife to scripture and they will butcher their bible so that you might believe something they know full well that the full counsel of god outright rejects They're, they're not doing god's work right they're undoing it three little steps at a time so on the surface, like this stuff, again, should not be persuasive. Why is this stuff so persuasive? Our big cable classroom could like tear these fools to shreds, right? If they showed up here, they would, they would tear them to shreds. But, but it is persuasive. And it was persuasive. This is why Peter had to write all this stuff in the first place and make, make a big deal about it. And so if you're sitting here thinking like, oh, like you're too smart to be duped. I would never be convinced by some of that stuff then you are exactly the kind of person that Peter wants to warn because your guard's not up. My guess is that the early church probably knew just as much about Noah, if not more than you do, right? And yet they found themselves in danger of believing a claim that leaves him out of the picture entirely and and undoes the only future hope that God has promised. How is that possible? False teaching uh, isn't so deeply persuasive because of what you do or, or don't know. That, that's part of it. Like, in fact, the, the truth is that if we've been soaking in truth, like when things are going pretty well, that when it comes to suffering, that's the stuff that, that actually keeps us anchored, that doesn't let us drift away. And so, man, be in the word. Soak in truth of the scriptures. Know the Lord. Pursue after him. Know about him, so, so that's part of it, but, but look, false teaching is, is ultimately so persuasive because it appeals to what your head and your heart already believes apart from Christ. It appeals to what feels natural or what, what seems to be happening on the surface. And, and for these folks in these churches at this time, it apparently sounded probably like this, that, that God has overlooked you. That God, at least as you've known him to be, that he has been unfaithful to you. Because if he really cared about all of the ungodly things that are opposing you or oppressing you, if he was actually concerned about sin and suffering in this world, then life wouldn't be this way. He wouldn't have let that happen. He wouldn't tolerate it. Are you tired of waiting? Waiting on the Lord? Waiting the way that God's told you to wait? So maybe, maybe he's not coming for you or maybe we've just misunderstood who he is or, or how we're supposed to wait if we're waiting for anything real at all. And for some of us in this room today, these are familiar thoughts, not just things that were thought a couple thousand years ago. And when, when someone validates this for us, especially if they're able to slap a couple Bible verses on it, right, and, and posture as some kind of authority in some way, I mean, it, it opens up the door to a whole lot of things that we never thought we'd ever believe or say or do. And it really doesn't take much convincing if we've already let suffering or sin or or any number of things that has happened to us or is going on inside of us, if we let those things mold us and give us the heart of a scoffer. It's, It's interesting, Peter does not refer to false teachers here as false teachers. He refers to them as scoffers. If you take away their audience, take away their platform, take away their credentials and their book deals, all the other stuff, what are you left with? It's somebody who doesn't want to wait for the Lord and would rather follow their own sinful desires without the fear of, of ever being held accountable. So look, if, if I wanted to convince myself that, that I could live my life however I wanted to and, and wouldn't be on the hook for for any of it, then you know the first thing that I would do? I, I would undermine any sort of notion of future judgment where I might be on the wrong side of it. That's what I would do. And, and, and like the men and women who thought that Noah was crazy until the flood came, <laughs> those who mock and mishandle the word of God for their own gain only have fire to look forward to when God once again and once for all rains down destruction on the ungodly just as his words and just as his track record says he has done and will do. God will not overlook ungodliness. This, this is a fact. And at the end of the day, false teachers are merely men and women who scoff at the Lord, which means which means we have to bring this back in some ways to, to all of us, because you don't have to be a, a false teacher in order to be a scoffer. And your heart doesn't need help from a false teacher in order to believe false things. And so we ought to examine the posture of our hearts this morning. Not take anything for granted just because you're sitting in church and you might be able to quote a couple Bible verses or talk about Jesus a little bit. Is your heart scoffing at the Lord? Are you deliberately overlooking the facts of Scripture? Are you even looking at Scripture you'll miss every shot that you don't take and you will overlook every scripture that you never read. How has suffering impacted your relationship with the Lord and with his church? Have you let hardship and outside voices disciple you, change what you believe, excuse the sin that's in your life, convince you to put your hope somewhere new or different? Lots of questions and those might be unsettling or uncomfortable to ask, but but we're asking them today. We're not asking them on the day of judgment. Could be today, just saying. But it's not happened yet. So as far as I know today, today is a day of of patience and grace and opportunity for repentance and belief in the living God who wants you to know that no matter what you're waiting for, He is in some sense, He's waiting for you. He will not overlook any ungodliness. And yet right now, God is at work patiently fulfilling his promises that he might not lose any single one of us. And that is point number two this morning, that God is at work patiently fulfilling his promises. Peter continues in verses 8 through 10. He says this, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved. So he's telling the church, "Don't, don't miss this fact as some other folks miss facts. Don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord isn't slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Some heavy stuff. So speaking of false teachers, I've been listening to a, a podcast that's tracing the, the rise and fall of a particular church and its well-known controversial pastor. Some of you guys may be listening to it as well. Um, and honestly, it's been frustrating for lots of reasons. It's been frustrating for lots of reasons, but frustrating first because of the release schedule. <laughs> like, okay, I now, I now know who's actually listening to the podcast by, who's laughing. Uh, it's been all over the place. Like, I've gotten like, I think I've gotten partially so used to binging stuff that I can just like listen to it all together that waiting a week for stuff is just forever. But then when it's like two weeks and three weeks, and I'm not sure when to expect the next podcast, I just want to give up. Like I'm just done. So I get to like two or three weeks and I'm like, I'm done. I don't want to listen to it anymore. I don't even care anymore. But then the next one comes out and Kelly's like, hey, I know that you said you don't want to listen to it, but uh, this guy's on it. You you might want to take it. And it's like, I know I already listened to it. And so (laughs) like just hooked right back in. Again, but the other thing that's frustrating is, is watching other people's reactions to it, like not just to each episode, but just like but folks prematurely declaring where the podcast is headed and what the producers, the ones who are made, what their conclusions are going to be, all this other stuff. And it's they're literally still recording interviews and figuring out what they're going to say, right? For, for the rest of the season, they don't even know where they're going with this stuff or what all is going to be in there. And it just frustrates me as somebody who wants to let storytellers, uh, journalists tell their stories. It's why I hate spoilers. Kelly, that's why I hate spoilers, can we just let them finish, can we just let them finish before we decide to cancel them, right, can we let them say all that they want to say before we judge them for for what they haven't even done, yeah, and so, gosh, like, and just impatience on full display, in me, all over the internet, for those who are listening to that stuff, just not wanting to wait till the end, not wanting to wait till the next episode, all kinds of stuff, and so I just have to wonder, like, how frustrating it must be for the Lord to have seven billion critics, Frustrated with how he's telling the most beautiful and comprehensive story ever written. Right, with how quickly it's moving along or what he's letting other people do or what he's doing or not doing or timing and all that stuff. Like, And we forget as we wait that behind us, right here, right now, behind us is a whole human history and an eternity past. And in front of us is, God knows what, an eternity future. And so man, the only one who has eyes on all of that, it's one person, and that's the Lord. So while false teachers do deliberately overlook the clear fact of God's judgment, Peter says that we can, we can begin to accidentally overlook the facts about the nature of God and, and this mission, his mission that he is on. Like, who we're waiting for and, and what we're ultimately waiting for him to do. And so he reminds us of this kind of cosmic perspective that we often forget and, and in many ways we'll never actually fully understand, but they can bring us peace and assurance while we wait. And so three things that Peter reminds us of, just in this little section to help kind of reestablish this perspective for us: God's cosmic timing, his cosmic pursuit, and his cosmic judgment. First. Shabbat's cosmic timing. To the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Right? So if you just stop and think about how tired you are at the end of a day, like a full day, all the stuff that you did, all the stuff you thought about, all the things you felt, all the things that you had to deal with, all of that stuff, and you multiply that by 7.7 billion, that is one day's worth of stuff happening from God's perspective. Just with humans, not let alone the, the whole cosmos, right? That's one day. And so us trying to wrap our heads around everything that's happened to every person on the planet for just one day, that would take way longer than, than 1,000 years. I did the math. If you try to squeeze it in, like you'd have to catch up on 19, pe- over 19,000 people's days every day for 1,000 years just to figure out what happened on Tuesday. That is bonkers. And similarly, and, and I'm not going to dredge up debates about how old the earth is and all that stuff. You can fight about that on your own. But, but 1,000 years is a fraction of human history. It's just true, wherever you like. It's a fraction of human history. And it's a fraction that is constantly approaching zero. It's, it's approaching nothing. Not just a day, but just nothing to a God who is infinite in nature, uh, and, and both inside and outside of time simultaneously. A millennium is just a drop in the bucket, Right? A shrinking drop in the bucket. And so the Lord might be a lot of things, but he's not slow like we might think that he is. He is operating on an entirely fundamentally different timetable than we are. One that he's in control of. And we often think that that we're the ones who just need to be patient with him. He's the one that's being patient with us. We're the ones who need to be sanctified. Not him. This actually is part of the second thing, that God's pursuit is cosmic. These all kind of roll into one another. And so, look, I know that for some of us, like, every day, every day that goes by without Jesus' return, seems like he's just prolonging evil, prolonging suffering, letting all this stuff happen in the world. But we have to remember that that's, that's actually the natural course of this fallen world. Right? And, and that when he does return, all, that, all that's found to be corrupt and insane, including any of those 7.7 billion people, will be swept away for good. False teachers would love for you to think that, that the continued presence of evil and suffering in the world is, is evidence of God's negligence or his non-existence. But it's not. The presence of evil and suffering is concrete evidence of of Satan's deception, how much he hates this world and how wicked human sin is. So what we think is God's slowness to return is is actually his his gracious and his patient inter because while we're busy scoffing at him and cursing at each other and and finding people to blame for stuff here, the Lord's busy trying to save us all. Right? He he doesn't want anyone to perish. When he comes, he doesn't want anyone to perish. And this patient pursuit is first directed towards who? He says he's patient with you. He is patient with us, his church first. Ones who often forget just his grace and his patience already towards us. And then, secondly, his patient pursuit is is for those who aren't yet his people. Every sinner and every scoffer, and every skeptic, every false teacher, just holding back his holy fire for one more day that they might find their sin reckoned with on the cross and be reconciled to God through Jesus, that they might reach repentance. And so if you're a Christian this morning and you find yourself frustrated, convicted or whatever by your own fickleness and your forgetfulness of God's grace, then I hope that what you find this morning is the patience of God towards you. Not the picture of an angry dad, like wagging his finger at you, but but the living God who loves you for the sole reason that you are his son or his daughter, and that never changes no matter how far you go away, how wayward you get, or what you don't remember about him. And if you're not a Christian, that living God wants to adopt you into his family. You can leave here scoffing, kicking and screaming, and yet his desire for you to know his grace would not go away one- bit. It's yours for the taking today. And the only thing that's keeping you from that, it's not the Lord. He stands ready to to forgive. It's the honest admission that your scoffing is just a cover for a heart that deep down knows its need for help, both in suffering and in sin. Enjoy the patience. Take hold of God's patience while it's still today, because tomorrow is not guaranteed. At some point, one more day will be the last day. And everything that God's been holding back will rain down in a way that we can't even begin to comprehend. And this is the third kind of perspective shaper for us. It's it's just the sheer cosmic judgment of God. It will be sudden. It will be total. It will be unavoidable in heaven and on earth, and it will be irreversible. If there's some evil that you think God might might have missed or some injustice that has gone unrectified in some way or some personal sin that you think that you've, you've hidden well enough, it will all be exposed and it will all be reckoned with if it's not been, we know, going back. The thing that scoffers said would never happen will be the thing that they'll wish had never actually happened. This is a cosmic perspective of God that Peter gives to a people who can be easily persuaded by a false teaching that, honestly doesn't see past the end of its own nose lots of times, right? What you've seen in your life, what, you, what you've experienced, the sliver of human history that you're aware of, that stuff matters. But if you're going to build a life or a theology or a hope based merely on what you are able to observe or experience in your own life and how your brain chooses just to interpret that, then you're going to overlook the fact about who we get to wait for. The nature of God revealed in Scripture through Jesus himself and how he in his patience is actually waiting for you. God is not overlooking ungodliness while we're sitting here waiting. He is waiting for our good, holding back his wrath and patiently fulfilling his promise and helping us to fulfill our great commission to to make and mature and multiply disciples, to spare all that he can as he moves creation towards a bigger, fuller sense of cosmic justice. In these last days, scoffers will come, and one day God will come. And as we'll see in a moment, there's there's more to His return than mere destruction, because a new creation will come as well. Read with me the last uh, bit in our focal passage this morning, verses eleven through thirteen. Peter writes this, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in the lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Our third point this morning is this, that God has freed us to wait with godliness, uh, before Kel and I were at the village, um, and maybe for a bit at the beginning, we used to use the phrase a lot. Um, it's all going to burn. We used to say that all the time. It's all going to burn, and, and I I don't remember all the reasons why we would say that. Um, lots of times it was like around like commenting on some of the more cringy ways that like churches would try to grow and attract people. Um, famously, I don't know if the Buvets are here this morning, but they would remember this. Like we got. Really worked up over a church that was just leaning really hard into having donuts on Sunday. Like, weirdly hard. Like, that was the thing that they were trying to, to get to attract people to come. Was like, these donuts, just all just donuts, signs of it, just donuts. And so, like, just I don't, we, it's all going to burn. How silly is that? If they're just attracting people with donuts, no, that stuff's going to last. I'm not gonna, they're not going to come for donuts, stay for donuts, and not Jesus. And that's just all going to burn in the end. Yeah, What's that? I know. Do have a lot of skidwood around here. And that's, that sounds just as arrogant as it was. I don't know why I was so angry. I like donuts. I like donuts. This isn't wrong with donuts. I'm not sure why we were so worked up about it. But like you may have heard that phrase used before. Maybe you've used it yourself almost as like a nonchalance about, about the way that we live or talk about stuff on this side of, of Jesus coming back. Almost like a permission slip to be Grumpy about things that we don't think should be worth anyone's time in these last days. So, why are we wasting our time being so concerned with what's happening in the here and now? Like, let's just get to what matters, put up with this place, and let's just get on to heaven, right? It's all going to burn anyway. But the funny thing here is that Peter literally draws the opposite conclusion when he thinks about the temporary nature of the world that we're in. Peter says, because it's all going to burn, shouldn't we be the kind of people marked by godliness and holiness The the cosmic perspective that Peter reminds us of, it doesn't free us from having to live in a certain way while we wait. In fact, it seems to elevate the importance of how we're waiting. And so, kind of, what is happening here? Well, Peter says, and this is our, our main idea for this morning, that God's people, they wait according to his promises. In other words, how we're waiting depends on what we're waiting for. And for too many Christians, what we're waiting for is, is just, it's only the wrath of God to come against the ungodly. And everything that we're grumpy about, and that's kind of it. That's our vision for what happens in the future. And when in reality, what Peter is saying that we should be waiting for are, are the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Many of us are, are looking ahead at the coming of the Lord, and we're really just waiting to get some bad news over with. When, when we ought to be waiting, even wanting to hasten, Peter says... Like, hurry it up. The arrival of the best part of God's good news. The coming of a righteous king and the arrival of his righteous kingdom. Right? And you can... Reveling in the destruction of the ungodly, grumpy, or reveling in the hope of righteousness. You get to stand in right now because of Christ, but you get to look forward to enjoying. And you want to see that happen. You want that to come as quickly as it possibly can. Look, I I know that talking about fire raining down, heavenly bodies melting, everything dissolving, like that does not sound like good news to be excited about. Um, the day of judgment sounds pretty terrible. The New Testament keeps referring to it like a thief coming in the night for crying out loud. So for many people like that's, that's not going to be a good day. But what's happened in the church is that the church has come to believe that it's not something to look forward to either, that it's somehow bad news, that it's something to be avoided or embarrassed about or ashamed of when we're talking to other people about the faith, just beyond using it as like a scare tactic or to try to scare someone into living a certain way or believing a certain thing. It's just something we'd rather shove in a drawer and forget that it's there, but that shouldn't be the case. In a cultural moment, like stirred up by fear and division and suffering more than ever and more aware of How that stuff is going on across the globe, man, business has never been better for folks wanting to exploit our desire for for someone with answers who can fix it all. And, And it's the same cultural moment that makes the good news of God's commitment to cosmic justice, cosmic heaven and earth justice more potent than ever. Judgment. It's the necessary run up to the new creation. You can't have a world where righteousness dwells if you don't first rid that world of all that's sinful and corrupt. Part of setting all things right is removing everything that is wrong. While these things are, are, are both good things on their own, they are not two totally disconnected things. Washing away what's old sets the stage for something new. The elimination of all that's ungodly is for the preservation for eternity of all that is godly. The source and spread of sin and suffering is banished, and then it's replaced by the righteousness of God and his people forever. Why are we embarrassed by this? Why do we act like this is bad news? Like, especially when God has gone to great lengths to make the good news of grace a central part of it. Not Not exploiting us like every other false teacher and every other religion out there, but paying the price himself, laying himself on the line as the one who can and will set it right, being willing to die so that we might live forever. The gospel is the opposite of every false teacher and it's the answer to every scoffer and it is the hope of every disciple that we should be screaming about. On the last day, the thing that those who were still scoffing at that point said would never happen, that will become the thing that they'll wish had never happened. And yet at the same time, it's also the day when what, what so often many of them say they want for us more than anything and are willing to sell us at the cost of, of ourselves or our conscience, our money or whatever, that will finally become a reality, a world set right in which righteousness alone dwells. And the craziest thing of all is that today in Christ, God offers every scoffer a place in that world. And he frees those of us who already know that we're inheriting that world to not only be the ones who let them know, but to start living as if it's already here because it is in part. And it is promised in full. We get to wait according to God's promise. And not only is the promise good, But it is also guaranteed. It's something that we do not have to worry about. It is done, it is locked up, it is secured. The moment that Jesus took our sin to the cross, overcame death in the grave, and rose to new life and to the right hand of God, new creation began to to break through. And we got a glimpse of what awaits all of us who place their faith in Him. So if you're looking for the promise of His coming, the question that I hope you're asking this morning, then look to Jesus, who not only said that he would come, but went to the graves that he could triumphantly come over all that opposes and oppresses us. To one day break the seemingly unbreakable cycle of sin and suffering in the world. In the meantime, sin and suffering are no longer threats to our theology. Hardship no longer has the power to change what we believe or excuse the inexcusable in our life. Jesus is our defense and he is our hope and he is our discipler. We don't have to resort to guilt or shame or fear to try and build something better. We don't have to turn to ungodliness. We don't have to sacrifice our conscience, our integrity, our reputation on the altar of progress or pragmatism because no matter how good we think we've got it or have to make it here, God is going to tear the heavens and the earth down. And he's going to replace it with something perfect and permanent, for the good of his people. The ends are in his hands, and his means are our holiness and our godliness. And so, if you want to hasten his arrival, if you want to speed along the coming of this new creation—that's even a thing—I don't know how that. I don't know how that works. Um, then Peter is telling you to live according to the righteousness that you say you're waiting for if you're really that eager to dwell in a place of righteousness, then live as if that's the kingdom that you are a part of today. Because you are. And because God has freed you to do that in times of suffering and in times of peace and health. So with what we're waiting for being both good and guaranteed, God has freed us to focus on how we are waiting. And we get to wait with godliness. So, so let's take our cues from god from the way that he is waiting for us and with us patiently pursue his church not wanting to lose anybody along the way wanting everyone even even the worst critics of the lord and of his people of us to come to repentance intervening in people's lives with good news and grace and patience all while not overlooking sin and suffering and not being ashamed of his coming but reminding the world of the cosmic justice that God will put to work for those who are his. What's the God that we're waiting for like? He's like this. That's who we're waiting for. And what do we get to be like while we wait for the promise of his coming? We get to be like this. God's people wait according to his promises. And so i just leave you with this question What does the way that you're waiting reveal about who or what you're waiting for? Band, you can come on up. Um, There will be some questions on the screen for you guys just to look at, think through, help stir up maybe whatever the Spirit might want to do in you this morning, what he wants you to know or be mindful of, what action he might want you to take in repentance or belief or whatever. So those will be up there for you to kick around. If you just need to pray, you need to take some space and, and just talk with the Lord. Um, there's a prayer bench over there. You can stay in your seats. Uh, I'll be back there against the wall. There'll be a couple people back there who would love to pray with you. Um, we would love to talk. If you are uh, a believer in Christ, if you trusted Jesus that, that your peace with God is through him, his life and his death and his resurrection, then this is for you, right? The, the wafer is a representation of the body of Christ that was broken for you and the juice a representation of the blood that Jesus shed for you that you might be part of his family. And so we just ask you in this time to reflect, repent if you need to and respond with worship, communion, sing, pray. So uh, if you would join me in prayer. God, thank you for once again your word. Thank you for the faithful hearts of apostles and prophets and certainly the great shepherd Jesus who warns us what is false and leads us to what's true to bring us home. And so this morning, God, I just pray that wherever we happen to be, the, with tears, with laughter, with peace, anxiety, wherever we happen to find ourselves this morning, that what you would put before the people who are gathered here is a vision of the future that is just in which righteousness alone dwells where we get to be with you and you get to be with us forever and the invitation for all of us this morning whether we are scoffers or whether we are saints that we would fall on our faces and know our need for you and find it at the foot of the cross and in the empty tomb and so god would you save us this morning save some of us save us from our sin maybe deliver our souls today help us to be encouraged and find hope and walk out of here this morning knowing that our future is sure and because that we get to follow you wherever you lead god thank you for jesus and it's in his name that we pray amen